0: Well, good afternoon, Redemption Hill. Uh, I am going to be, I have the honor and the privilege of preaching to you again, since Sean is out of town. And I wanted to thank you for coming in on such a beautiful spring afternoon. So last week, we did take a break from our sermon series in Ephesians uh, to focus on Easter, that glorious resurrection of our Lord. But this week we're going to be jumping right back into Ephesians, back into the thick of things. And as I was preparing for this message, there were a few things that did strike me. One thing is that we are now in April. So a quarter of the year has already passed and I don't know what you guys are feeling, but I feel like this has been going insanely fast. But on the other hand, another thing struck me. Almost in contrast, our sermon series in Ephesians began in February. And only now have we just reached over the halfway point for Ephesians 1. Now, I promise that we will not always be going at this sort of crawl. But I think it's important to note the reason that we're taking our time is that Ephesians 1 is one of the most theologically dense writings of Paul. Many theologians just see Ephesians in general as a smaller version of Romans with how dense it is. So since this uh, text is so dense, I wanted to recap and remind you of one of the main ideas that Sean has been teasing out across this sermon series. Throughout the text, we have seen the roles of each person of the Trinity in what is called the Covenant of Redemption. The Covenant of Redemption is the covenant that God made with Himself to redeem a particular people to Him. Through Ephesians 1, we have seen the role of God the Father and God the Son as they take place in the Covenant of Redemption. In verses 4 and 5, the scriptures tell us that God the Father chose us before the foundations of the world and predestined us for adoption, both of which are done in love. So God, before Genesis 1-1, made a decision to choose you, to choose me, to be adopted as his child. This was his role in the covenant of redemption he is the one who has decreed the end from the beginning. And verse 7 speaks of God the Son's role in redemption. See, God the Father set forth the plan of redemption, but God the Son accomplished the plan of redemption. This was Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. Sin and rebellion against God, deserving of wrath and punishment. Christ Went to the cross to bear that punishment for us. He bore that punishment for God's chosen people. As the text says, our redemption is through his blood. We have the forgiveness of trespasses. All done in accordance with the riches of God's grace. So, so far, we have covered two Of the roles within the Trinity when it comes to redemption so this evening we come to the final person of the Trinity and his role and I'm extremely excited to preach about this and there's more more than one reason for it one reason is I was excited to preach was that when it comes to the works of each person of the Trinity a lot is said about the Father and about the Son but in comparison There's relatively few texts that speak about the Holy Spirit. This text is one of those few texts that directly speak of the Spirit's work in our lives. And to gain an insight into his work is a gift in and of itself. It's something to be excited about. The other reason that I'm excited for this text is that I think it's one of the greatest texts that I go to when I'm struggling with doubt when I'm struggling with my faith, this text fills me with hope. So as we move through this text, I hope that that hope is made clear. Now, as we go forward, for you note takers, uh, I will let you know that there's going to be three main things that I'm going to cover when it comes to the Spirit's role in redemption. The role of the Spirit is that He applies the redemption to our lives. In this application of redemption, we are going to talk about first, when does the Spirit apply the redemption? Second, how does He apply that redemption? And finally, why does He apply that redemption? So, first and foremost, when is redemption applied? We read in verse 13, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So, verse 13 seems very cut and dry about when our redemption is applied to us. It is when we hear and believe the gospel. There are, however, a few just implications that I want to draw out here. Because there are certain theologies that this text can cut against. Specifically, a theology called hyper-Calvinism. As many of you know, and if you didn't, surprise! We're Calvinists. We're a Calvinistic church. We believe in the doctrines of grace. And what that means is that we believe that man is totally depraved. That God chose a people unconditionally for redemption that Christ died for those chosen people and that the Spirit draws them irresistibly to God and that Christians will be preserved as Christians and not fall away from the faith. And I hope you recognize many of those doctrines are found in Ephesians 1. However, hyper-Calvinism takes these doctrines and twists them to conclude that since God does all of this, there's no reason to evangelize. God will save whom He will save, regardless of the effort I put into it. This may seem like a position you could be tempted to. I have been tempted to it. Because let's be honest, evangelism and sharing our faith can be uncomfortable, it can be scary. And it is far easier to just throw up our hands and say, let God do it. God will save who will save but it is it is as though but it is through us that god redeems the flock that are not of his fold yet see we are his means to that end let's let's look at the text again when you heard the word of truth the gospel of your salvation the gospel is good news that's what gospel means and news has to be told this implies that god's people us you, me. We are not passive in God's plan of redemption. Now, some here possibly, or people watching online might think to yourselves, well, God doesn't actually need to use me. He could choose to save someone miraculously through dreams or through visions. He can directly tell them the gospel. And I will concede that this is a possibility. God can choose to save someone in any fashion he likes. However, I would argue that this is not the primary means that he saves his people. If you wish, you can turn with me to Romans ten thirteen through 15. We read, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will, how then will they call on them who they have not believed? And how are they to believe him whom they have not heard? and how are they to hear without someone preaching and how are they to preach unless they are sent as is it is written how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news i don't know if i can make it any more clear than that it is through us the people of god that he chooses to save his flock And we should rejoice in that. God will actually use us in his plan for redemption. Now from our text, we do see that hearing the gospel is not enough, but it does have to be believed. When those two events happen, hearing the gospel, believing the gospel, is when the Holy Spirit applies our redemption, which the Father has predestined and the Son has accomplished. When we believe the gospel for redemption, a natural question that can rise up is then how is redemption applied? What happens after we believe? We read in verse 13 and 14 that we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. This is how redemption is applied. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean to be sealed with the Holy Spirit? Being sealed can mean many different things. Um, It can mean how you seal up a container, um, a jar, or it can be like how Jesus' body was sealed in the tomb. If we take sealed to mean this, there is a sense perhaps that the Holy Spirit is sealing the truth of the gospel in our hearts after we believe it. This is certainly one sense of sealed, uh, and some commentators did take this approach. However, I find it to be more accurate to say that the use of the term seal is like a mark or an official seal placed on an object for authentication. For example, uh, kings would oftentimes place their seals on official documents or decrees authenticating that that document had authority and was from the king merchants also could place their seal on their cargo labeling it it's theirs they have ownership of that cargo the spirit then is a seal that is given to us authenticating our redemption and identifying us as God's people in a sense it makes our redemption official this is how redemption that was decided before the foundation of the world and how Christ accomplished it in Calvary is applied. But why is this important? It is important because it is the proof that we no longer are who we were. It is proof that the ownership of our hearts has been transferred and we are now God's. We will see in Ephesians 2 in future sermons that we were once children of wrath under the prince of the power of the air, who I take to be Satan. We were once sons and daughters of disobedience, but the seal of the spirit means we are now sons and daughters of God. It is another sign of our adoption to God's family. God looked at you from eternity past knowing your sins and your rebellions and he said no this one's mine this, I, this one I will make them part of my family you are sealed with the spirit and it is undeniable proof that the father has applied your redemption and the son has accomplished it to make you God's own and the spirit doesn't only apply your redemption but he guarantees it this gets into the final question of, of why he applies the redemption. And there's a lot here. Read that he is the guarantee of our inheritance. Inheritance here is a little bit different than what we read in verse 11. If you remember, Sean argued and talked about how verse 11, the word meant more that we became God's inheritance or heritage. But here, the inheritance is something that we gain, and it is guaranteed by the Spirit. And I will take some time to go over guarantee, guarantee, the word guaranteed, but first I want to focus on inheritance. If the reason the Holy Spirit is given is to seal or, and guarantee an inheritance, it's important to understand what is that inheritance. Some commentaries state that the inheritance is an eternal life in heaven. And, and this is certainly a portion of it. It is one of the greatest hopes that we have as Christians. When we die, our story does not end. We code to be with God. But I think there is even more. Um, John Calvin on this passage, passage rightly points out that the world is corrupted. It needs to change and it's not going to stay the same. We should be reminded that our ultimate end is not to depart from this world forever and to just spend eternity in heaven. No, Christ is coming back, and he will restore creation to perfection. The corruption will be cleansed. We will not live forever as spirits. We will be given new, resurrected, perfect, glorified bodies to live on the new heavens and the new earth. All of this is our inheritance because we are fellow heirs with Christ. See Romans 8. To me, this is the fullness of our salvation, or or at least the consequences of it. And if that's not enough, God says that it is guaranteed. I've mentioned this multiple times. The Holy Spirit himself is the guarantee that we will acquire our inheritance. This word guarantee, this, this one little word, is what gives me so much hope and confidence in salvation. Some translations uh, translate this word as a down payment. So the spirit is a down payment uh, to show that the full payments, our fuller inheritance, will be made at a later date. He is the portion of what we will receive. However, I'm actually going to side with a different translation, an older translation, a favorite of our Rob Lane here. I love how the KJV. King James Version translates the word. They translate the word as an earnest payment. Now Sean mentioned this previously on a sermon, but only briefly, and I really wanted to dive into it. You see, recently my wife and I have been contemplating about if we were at the point in our lives where we could possibly consider buying a house. My brother recently bought a house and he was encouraging us, um, just because of how much he's loved the experience and actually owning his own home. So I I started taking a look into it. Um, I talked to a real estate agent and they pointed me to a loan officer and it was through that loan officer that I found out that there was a lot that goes into purchasing a house that I did not know. I thought you just showed up and you bought it. That's not the case as I'm sure many of you know. (laughs) No, there's a lot more that goes into it Um, I had to have not just a down payment for the house, but I have to have the closing cost covered. That was news to me, I was not prepared. I also learned that there's earnest money involved. Earnest money was something I was told that you put down to show your seriousness of buying the house. I'm putting this money down to say I'm interested and I'm gonna show up at the close with the rest of the money for the house. If I were to back out, they keep the money. They keep it forever and I know a lot of you know this about houses but let's think about the implications then for our text. The Holy Spirit is the earnest payment for our redemption. God has said that he has redeemed you and at the close of sale you will receive your inheritance. At the close there's eternal life, heaven, restoration, resurrection, in eternity with God. If the close does not happen, if we do not receive our inheritance, if God fails in our redemption and we fall away, we keep the earnest payment. We keep the Holy Spirit. God would lose the third person of the Trinity. Or as the great pastor and theologian Vodibachum summed it up, and I think best, for you to lose your salvation, God has to stop being God. This truth is so beautiful for me. See, because I sometimes struggle with doubt. I sometimes doubt God, his word, and I doubt my own salvation. And if I'm honest with myself, it's somewhat frequently. There is sin in me that I struggle with. It doesn't seem to go away, and it doesn't seem to improve with time. And I look at myself in the mirror, and I just ask, am I truly a Christian? How can a Christian keep on battling with this sin over and over again? Shouldn't I be better than this? Perhaps you struggle with your faith. Perhaps you have doubts or are fighting a particular sin. But when you come, when you do come to this text, Look and see how God has marked you as His own. He has put the seal upon you. He has made the earnest payments of your salvation, which He will lose if He doesn't finish His work. For Him to back out, for Him to stop saving you, for Him to stop bringing your faith to completion, it's then an impossibility. All of the constants of the universe that we rely on, gravity, friction, things that make up the fabric of reality, none of them is greater than the fact that God will not stop being God. Your salvation then is secured by the Holy Spirit. And before I move on to the one more reason as to why the Spirit has applied this redemption I do want to mention one thing about this doctrine. Just as hyper-Calvinism, who has taken the roles of the Father and the Son and has gone too far, there is another doctrine that takes this role of the Spirit too far. It is a belief called antinomianism. They say that since your salvation is secure, and you will never lose it, the Holy Spirit has guaranteed everything. You do not have to worry about living a holy life. You do not have to worry about keeping God's laws. They would say that we can live our lives any way that we see fit and and sin as we want because we're already saved. We have nothing to fear. This belief could be further from the truth. You can turn to Romans 6. Paul wrestles with this very same question in the first four verses of Romans 6. Prior to these verses, he was arguing that with, with the law came an increase of sin. But with the increase of sin came an increase of God's grace as he forgave those sins. And Paul anticipated the objection that this would lead to antinomianism. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Should we just live our lives sin so God can be more and more gracious to us? What does Paul say? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by a baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Paul makes it clear once again. So Christian, yes, you are saved. And you cannot lose your salvation because of the seal of the Spirit. But we are not free to live as we please. You are to walk in the newness of life. Your old self bound to sin and with no option to do anything other than sin has been freed so that you may walk by the Spirit and walk in more Christ-likeness. The seal of the Spirit is not a license to sin, but instead, He is our helper to live a holy life. This brings me to my final point. There is one Final reason that the Holy Spirit applies our redemption. He gives us security of salvation and we will receive our inheritance. But these are ultimately to serve another purpose, a greater purpose. And is in the final portion of our text, to the praise of his glory. This is ultimately the reason for the Spirit's role, the praise of God's Glory. And, and as I was writing this, I was kind of debating with myself if I really wanted to highlight this text. Not because the glory of God is unimportant. If you have spent any time at Redemption Hill Church, you know that we love to glorify God. We love to glorify Him in our giving, in our worship, in the preaching of the Word, and in communion. However, I was fearful of just being repetitive because this exact same phrase was at the end of the last sermon. But that's the point. When something is repeated, our ears should perk up. Paul is not repeating himself for the sake of hitting a word count on an assignment. His words are not arbitrary or flippant. He is wanting to underline, highlight, bold the importance of the glory of God. Just by skimming Ephesians 1, we see that it is overflowing with glory. Look at verse 6 to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Or verse 12, we read, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In our passage, we see the phrase again, to the praise of his glory. In verse 17, it says the father of glory. Lastly, verse 20, it talks about the riches of his glorious inheritance. We see glory after glory after glory. If glory is so important to Paul that he mentions it five times in one chapter, it should be important to us. Our redemption is to the praise of God's glory. So as you leave here today, do not forget all that God has accomplished. Meditate on the Father's role to choose you, the Son's role to die for you, and the Spirit's role to be a seal for you, a guarantee of your salvation. And with this, let the praise of God